Welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sandak. I'm a certified sister and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton Planning Committee, along with Alan Culp and Dan Horan. I'm happy to be back with you after a two-month hiatus. Like many of you, I wear several hats, and occasionally another one takes precedence. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. If you've joined us before, you know that we like to begin these sessions with a short prayer or reflection. Well, last week I turned another year older and it brought to mind a 17th century nun's prayer. I think some of you may be able to relate to it as well. God, you know better than I know myself that I am growing older and will someday be old. Keep me from the fatal habit of thinking I must say something on every subject and every occasion. Release me from craving to straighten out everybody's affairs. Make me thoughtful, but not wordy, helpful, but not bossy. With my vast store of wisdom, it seems a pity not to use it all. But you know, God, that I want a few friends at the end. Keep my mind free from the recital of endless details. Give me wings to get to the point. Seal my lips on my aches and pains. They are increasing and I love rehearsing them. That's becoming sweeter as the years go by. I dare not ask for grace enough to enjoy the tales of others' pains, but help me to endure them with patience. Keep me reasonably sweet. I do not want to be a saint. Some of them are hard to live with, but a sour old person is one of the crowning works of the devil. Give me the ability to see good things in unexpected places and talents in unexpected people. And give me, O oh God, the grace to tell them so. Amen. And now it is my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Kathleen Bikuskatar. Kathleen is a longtime Alaskan and lives and writes under the Shogach Mountains in Anchorage. She's the author of We Are All Poets Here, a well-researched memoir about her spiritual journey involving Alaska, Russia, and Thomas Merton. She is a William Shannon Fellow and is founder of the Alaska chapter of the International Thomas Merton Society. Her writing has been included in newspapers and literary journals, including the Sewanee Review, Alaska Quarterly Review, Cirque, and the Anchorage Daily News. Her essays have appeared in various Merton-related publications, such as Merton and the World's Indigenous Wisdoms, We Are Already One, and The Merton Seasonal. Kathleen was a presenter at the 2019 and 2021 conferences of the ITMS. For five years, Kathleen worked as the program coordinator of the low residency MFA program in creative writing at the University of Alaska Anchorage. Occasionally, she teaches community workshops and seminars on such topics as Thomas Merton, Spiritual Explorer for Our Times. Kathleen served for three years as a governor appointee on the board of the Alaska Humanities Forum 
and was recently elected to the ITMS Board of Directors. Since 1990, she has been a frequent traveler to Russia and Poland. A member of PEN America, 49 Writers, and the Alaska Historical Society, Kathleen holds an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Pittsburgh. Much of her time is spent contemplating the spiritual geography of mountains. Here now is Kathleen Tarr speaking on From the Inner Frontier to the Last Frontier, Thomas Merton's Alaska Journey. Kathleen. Thank you very much, Teresa. And hello, everyone out there. Uh, greetings from Latitude 61 here in Anchorage, Alaska, the land of the freezing faithful. Uh, I'm really honored that you're with me this evening. And, and, I, and I actually do mean that because I know you have lots of things on your plate. You have lots of other distractions and worthy things you could be doing right at this moment. But here you are on this podcast and I'm very, very grateful. Also, I'm honored that there are people who are joining this podcast uh, they're taking a big spiritual leap by doing so because many uh, Alaskans, I think, that are in the audience tonight don't know a lot about Thomas Merton, and they've tuned in too, so thank you to all of those people. So why was I drawn to Merton? Well, it's not because he was Catholic and I was Catholic, because I wasn't at the time I discovered Merton in 2005. I discovered Merton and was, was attracted to him because of his uh, literary talents, because he was a gifted writer. And I kept hearing a lot of things, a lot of things about him. He had written 50 or 60 books and he lived in this uh, backwoods Kentucky monastery. He had his own literary agent. And uh, I mean, how many writers even have an encyclopedia devoted to them. So I was very, very curious about who Thomas Merton was. Well, I've been up here freezing with the faithful since 1978. And so I'm gonna give you a little bit of a different perspective on uh, the, the, the story about Thomas Merton in Alaska and his remarkable trip that he had here for two weeks in 1968. In part one, what I'm going to do is just give you some general comments and some reflections with my a little bit of my Alaska perspective. And then I hope you'll stick around because in part two, I'm going to show you some slides and some images of Alaska that are really quite interesting. Some of them were images that were left on Merton's camera when he was here and the film was processed, uh, of course, uh, after he died. And again, for those who are new to Merton, Alaska was one of the last places on earth he saw two and a half months after he was here. He died um, outside of Bangkok. So the images that I'm going to show you in part two really are going to put into context the quick recordings that he made in his working notebook when he was in Alaska in 1968, which was then published as Thomas Merton in Alaska, the journal. Um, before we really get started though, there are a couple of thank yous I want, I want to um, say and some people I want to acknowledge. First of all, I want to thank Anne McCormick 
and the Merton Legacy Trust for permission to show some of the images that I'll be showing this evening. And I really cannot properly proceed without acknowledging all the other Merton scholars who came before me and to whom I'm very in indebted. To name just a few, Bonnie Thurston and Ron Dart, I thank you very much for your important insights. Sister Elizabeth O'Hara in New Jersey, she is a charter member of the International Thomas Merton Society. She shared with me her paper, Merton in Alaska. Sister Donna Kristoff wrote a beautiful essay on iconography, uh, Light That Is Not Light. I'm also greatly indebted to Professor Emerita's sister, Elena Mallets, who was for many years associated with St. Mary's College at Notre Dame. She wrote a biography of Merton called The Solitary Explorer. And in my early days of my Merton journey, this book was pivotal to me. It was just an excellent book and I'm really grateful. I wanna thank Father Dick Tarot, who was a Catholic priest retired in Seward, Alaska, who's always helped me, and Dr. Michael Higgins from Canada, also very, very instrumental in the work of his I've read. Christine Bochin, uh, I want to thank you because way back in 1998, you facilitated a discussion at Bellarmine University uh, that was called Women Who Knew Merton. And somehow years ago, I acquired this CD and listened to it over and over again. Very helpful. But I know that, Christine, you've gone on and done a lot of other things besides that. And finally, I want to thank Dr. Paul Pearson, Mark Mead, Patrick F. O'Connell, who has done so much work in every facet of Merton's life. And finally, a Merton scholar, an editor, a poet, a friend, and someone you know, a lot of you know, whom I consider one of my mentors, a man who just walks around shining like the sun, and that is Jonathan Muntaldo. Thank you to all of you. Okay, let's get started. Um, I'm gonna have to go a little quickly for this first part, uh, just to squeeze everything in here. So Thomas Merton exerted and still exerts a tremendous amount of creative energy. Uh, when it came to interfaith exploration, when it came to intellectual depth and his uh, explorations on an intellectual level, Merton didn't just reach across the aisle. Thomas Merton, reached across the universe. He arrived in Alaska in September of 1968. Now this is a time when most summer visitors in Alaska have come and gone. This is a time when the trumpeter swans are migrating south. It's a time when the termination dust, the early snows are falling on the Chugach range. It's a time of the year when Alaskans are actually thinking about winter already. 1968. It's either the year of the poet or it's the year from hell. It just depends on how you look at it. A few months before Merton came to Alaska, uh, one of his many, many correspondents was Ernesto Cardinal in Nicaragua. And Merton wrote to him in March before he came to Alaska that this country is mad with hatred, frustration, stupidity, and confusion that there should be such ignorance and stupidity in a civilized land is just incomprehensible. The overworked Merton went on to say, I 
would want to disappear completely if I could go somewhere where I wasn't known at all, not to have any kind of public existence whatsoever. Well, Alaska, wild places galore, right? Places you can disappear so easily, especially back then in 1968, when it was a little bit easier to, to lead an unbridled existence. And besides back then, Alaska was just considered the physical frontier, it really was. We were on the outskirts of bustling America, right? We were, well, we had just been, been we had just been named a state nine years earlier than before Merton came. To many people in America, Alaska was just a sort of cultural backwater. And we were considered nothing but a wasteland, maybe, you know, an icebox of snow and not just not much to think about. Well, in this time together tonight with you, I really want to stress the importance of our relationship to landscape, to geography, to geology in Alaska, and how important this is when we talk about Merton's visit to Alaska, we really have to talk about where we are all placed on the face of the earth and what is our relationship to place and landscape. This is something you can't read about in a book. This is something you have to experience firsthand. So when you look at the introductions that were written, and here's the published Alaska journal, Thomas Merton in Alaska, that was published in 1989 by New Direct Press. When you look at the introductions in there, they don't really speculate too much about what Merton's connections uh, might have been to the Alaska landscape, to the sublime mountains that we have here, to the sheer spaciousness and vast lands that we have. They didn't speculate too much about that. But scholars have said that Alaska is mm, the prelude to his Asian journey. But I say, Alaska is not just the prelude to the Asian journey. Alaska is the perfect prelude to the Asian journey. This is a land of instant geology. So what do I mean by that? Well, Merton spent a lot of time uh, tra tracing all over Alaska, and I will get to that later. But two of the places he visited, Cordova and Yakutat, which are on the north uh, Gulf of Alaska coast, the northern uh, part of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, instant geology, absolutely. These places where Merton visited, when it comes to seismicity on a scale of zero to 10, these were tens. This was the danger zone when it came to instant geology, land moving, glaciers galloping, erosion taking place, tidal waves, all kinds of things. Overall, Merton's trip to Alaska has been just considered a blip, uh, just a, an episode in his just extraordinary life. Um, there was just simply so much to study after Merton, after Merton died. Um, the, the scholars were overwhelmed. Here's the official biography written by Michael Mott of Thomas Merton. And this book is just monumental. It's fantastic. It was, it was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. 
I've read it several times. Uh, it's hefty. It's, he did a phenomenal job. But when I first looked at it, maybe more than 12 years ago now, I have to tell you, as an Alaskan, I was a bit, hmm, a little miffed, I guess you would say, because in 590 pages, uh, there were only two pages devoted devoted to his Alaska, to his Alaska time. But there's, it's understandable now why that happened. Again, there were journals, books, restricted journals, letters, so much to synthesize. And Alaska was this faraway place and you people didn't really get here then, the scholars, they just had too much work to do. So I understand it much more now. Some of you have heard me say this before, but you know, I, I'm just gonna have to repeat it because I think it's important. A lot of people who don't know Merton's life intimately and have not studied it up close are pretty quick to say that from 1965 to 1968, it were, those were his hermitage years. Because as you know, Merton was given special permission to live in a cinder block hut uh, away from his other brother monks, uh, not too far from the monastery's main complex. Um, he didn't have running water when he first got there and the bathroom wasn't very good either. But from that hut, his hermitage, he could walk down and he could check his mail every day. He could get some meatless soup. He could talk to some people. Uh, a couple friends could take him in a car, uh, drive him to Louisville for doctor's appointments. Uh, he would visit Tommy O'Callaghan's family. He would go on picnics. Uh, he, you know, he lived on the road system, right? So by Alaska standards, of course, uh, he wasn't a hermit. Uh, he didn't have to subsist for his daily living. He didn't have to shoot a moose or a caribou to live. Um, one of my native Alaskan friends put it very well. He said, Thomas Merton may be a Trappist monk, but he don't know a damn thing about trapping. So in all fairness to Merton though, he even admitted that he wasn't really a hermit, that he wasn't a true hermit. Part of the reason that he came to Alaska in 1968 was because he was actually looking for a location to someday uh, be more of an outright hermit. And Alaska was on his hermit's hit list, even though originally it was not his idea to come to come to Alaska, it was the Archbishop, the first Archbishop of Anchorage, Joseph T. Ryan, who was very gung-ho and quite a visionary. It was because of him that Merton uh, accepted the invitation to come here. The other thing to know about Merton in Alaska is the incredible amount of stamina it took for Merton to come here. And for this, I must pat him on the back greatly. Do we really understand the stamina he had here? I don't think people really get it. As an Alaskan, I get it. He flew everywhere. He flew in a private bush plane. He had his own pilot, thanks to the Archbishop of Anchorage. He flew in a jet, a commercial jet. He drove around Alaska. He put in, uh, he organized eight conferences for nuns and for clergy and military chaplains. He wrote, uh, 16 letters and typed them and sent them back home. He kept a working notebook uh, 
as a writer myself, I know how hard this is to be, you know, jetting around, hopping around, socializing. And at the same time, you're writing in your notebook, recording all these observations. So he did all of this. It was a jam packed, jam packed itinerary. He would have definitely been given an MVP gold, you know, mileage plan uh, number with all the work and all the flying around he did. Um, he wasn't just stuck in Anchorage, as I mentioned, you know, he went to, he went to Juneau, Cordova. He went out to Bristol Bay region, to Dillingham. He went to Copper Center, South Central Alaska, Yakutat, Valdez. However, no media interviews were allowed. That's why a lot of people don't, don't realize that Merton, who became this famous spiritual figure of the 20th century, was in Alaska because there were no interviews. The, the abbot had put him under strict restrictions no interviews in Alaska. Uh, and so, you know, that was okay. Why? Well, there wasn't exact, exactly a spiritual stampede of people busting down the doors of the Catholic Church in Alaska. Uh, Alaskans um, were pretty diverse when it came to religious groups. We, uh, we, had, a, we had a synagogue in Anchorage, we have about 50 parishes of Russian Orthodoxy, primarily that is the primary Christian denomination of Alaska's native peoples. We had evangelicals, we have Unitarians, we had a few Quakers, we have Protestants of all denominations and only about 10% of Alaska was Catholic. And I think actually it may be true today that we only have maybe 10% today. Merton, really liked Alaska. And he knew something about our state's history too. And, and listen to what he said. He said, in reality, Alaska is full of hermits. Uh, there are people who have come far out into the wilderness with a stack of books and who get themselves a homestead. They cut wood, they stay away from everyone. They live on moose and fish and caribou. And Merton confesses, I don't really plan it that way, but it just gives you a good idea of the character of the place. On September 24th, 1968, in one of his many letters he wrote back to Kentucky, uh, to, he said that Alaska is certainly the most beautiful part of America and the people are very nice too. Uh, he also reported that it would be folly for him not to consider Alaska as one of the best possibilities for the solitary life. And he hopes that he could come and return here someday when he was through with Asia. You ought to see this country sometime, he told the folks back at the monastery. Some of the mountain vistas that Merton was introduced to in Alaska of course, he had been to the American West too. He had been to New Mexico and saw some mountains there and he saw some in Northern California. But in Alaska, he saw the most. He saw the Chugach Range, the Alaska Range, part of the Aleutian Range, Mount Augustine, Iliamna, McKinley, now known as Denali, Mount Fouracre, the Wrangell-St. Elias Range, which now comprises 13 million acre national park and preserve. He saw Mount Sanford, Mount Drum, Spur, Baldy, Susitna, and my favorite mountain of all, Mount St. Elias, which is 
the second highest mountain in the United States, 18,008 feet high, which you can see on the horizon of Yakutat. By the way, um, there are 70, at least 70 references to mountains in his Alaska journal. And I find this really interesting because in Kentucky, from what I can tell, the largest mountain is Black Mountain and it's about 4,100 feet. So uh, I've had many synchronicities with Merton since I discovered who he was in 2005. And one of them is that we both have had an argument with a mountain. After, after Merton spent two weeks in Alaska, he ended up in Northern India uh, where he was staying in Darjeeling. And this was close to the third highest mountain in the whole world, Kanchenjunga. Okay, that's 80 miles east of Mount Everest. And he could see Kanchenjunga from where he was. And he made some notations about it in very, very profound metaphorical, mystical notations about it. His argument with the mountain and it's very famous in the Asian journal. I also had an argument with a mountain, which was Mount St. Elias. And when I lived in Yakutat, which was the Clinkett Indian village on the North Gulf Coast of Alaska, population 350, no roads in or out. When I first lived there, I had a dark room. I had a 35 millimeter camera. I tried to capture Mount St. Elias in a beautiful photograph, sort of like what Merton was trying to do with Kanchenjunga only I could never seem to capture it on film. But still, that mountain penetrated my imagination. It got me interested in Russian history. It got me interested in uh, the prophet Elias I'd never heard of in my life, uh, not having owned a Bible and having not been a member of any church group in my life. So that mountain led me to a lot of different things. One of the things about Merton's visit to Alaska that's pretty interesting is that he was very relaxed and informal when he was here. And you know, he had a great sense of humor. And uh, this is something that, that goes unnoticed a lot of the times. But he traveled uh, with a boyish optimism. He was fully present, fully engaged, you know, receptive to the whole universe, like whatever was gonna to happen to him in 1968, he was ready, he was really ready. He wanted to be less cerebral. He was ready to detach from books, scholasticism, to you know live with less analysis and abstraction and concepts and so forth. And uh, this is a great irony, isn't it? Because here he was a famous writer a word collector, but yet he was ready to empty his spiritual toolbox of words and more words. As William Blake said, he was ready to cleanse the doors of perception. Let me share with you a couple of the humorous moments while he was in Alaska. So Father Tom Connery was a young priest who was the assistant to the archbishop here in Anchorage. And Father Tom Connery told me that, you know, he got, he got to escort Merton around to some places. And so one afternoon, he turned to Thomas Merton and he said, you know, Tom, I got to tell you, I mean, I really appreciated 
your Catholic conversion story in the seven story mountain. But honestly, I, I didn't really understand the first 300 pages of your book. And Merton turned to him and said, that's okay. I didn't understand the first 300 pages either. It was a very confusing time in my life, Merton said. So the, the nuns uh, that were in Eagle River who, who had most of the workshops, uh, that group with Merton and uh, who hosted him, fed him, uh, they really took, you know, they were really worried about this VIP religious celebrity and the protocols. And so his religious name, Thomas Merton's religious name is Father Lewis. And when the nuns asked him, what shall we call you? Well, he just looked at them and said, well, just call me Uncle Louie. So he was very, very informal. Here's a story from Yakutat. Um, and this one uh, is very near and dear to my heart since I lived there. So in Merton's Alaska Journal, he mentions Frank Ryman. And Frank Ryman lived in Yakutat and took him around and showed him uh, the Clinkett Indian village. And uh, Mr. Ryman and his wife owned a small, small lodge at the Yakutat Airstrip, place I've been to many times. So in 1968, they took Merton there for lunch. Merton was sitting there having, uh, about to eat. The cook comes out of the kitchen, plops the food down in front of Thomas Merton. And Thomas Merton innocently asks, whoa, hey, what are we having for lunch? And the cook said, well, we call it SOS, shit on a shit on a shingle. At which point, Mrs. Ryman was completely mortified, and Thomas Merton just burst out into into laughter. Another one, he said to the Alaskans on the ground here, "Look, you Alaskans don't have the luxury of worrying about a spiritual identity crisis." not with all those Kodiak brown bears running around and breathing down your neck. One of the nuns of the precious, um, the sisters of the precious blood uh, in Eagle River was asked to mend a pair of Merton's socks while he was here. However, she did mend them, but she kept them as a relic and never gave them back. Now I wanna change here, here, and talk about something far more serious. Um, and that is the remarks that Merton made when he was here. Now, I do agree with the scholars that these talks that Merton gave in Alaska, which are found in the back of the Merton Journal, the published Merton Journal, were really the culmination, the grand synthesis of his life's work since he first entered the Abbey of Gethsemane on December 10th, 1941 at age 27. In Alaska, his topics were so wide ranging in these conferences that really to unpack each one, I could do a separate talk for someone else on every single one. Uh, there's just so much uh, depth to what he said. So I'm only going to be able to cherry pick a few things here, but I hope that you will pick up the Alaska Journal sometime and you will read through uh, Lexio Divina style, the, the, the content in the back. Here are some of the things uh, briefly that he touched upon. Sufi mysticism, the Holy Spirit, prayer, how to pray, the contemplative life, Eastern spirituality, Russian theologians, Buddhists, 
He talked about Martin Buber, Eberhard Arnold, who in 1925 was writing in Europe. He was an Anabaptist writing in Europe about the fact that totalitarianism, fascism, Marxism, all these forces were clashing and Christianity was losing its social power and impact in the general population. Well, his book, Arnold's book, Why We Live in Community, was something Merton had read in 1967. And when he got to Alaska, he was talking about Everhard Arnold. He also talked about Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and he mentioned Julian of Norwich. So again, um, I'm still studying these comments that he made in Alaska. Um, but in the, if you think about the chaos of the times we live in, and you put in perspective what he said in Alaska in 1968, there are a lot of connections uh, that we can think of that bring Merton's reflections to mind. Quickly, some examples. That, uh, uh, that's going on today, right? A weakening of democracy, the repetition of big lies, um, the abuse of public language, an insurrection on the US Capitol, global pandemic, refugees fleeing oppression, ecological awareness and a sense of urgency, systemic racism, the George Floyd uh, killing and others, the Taliban, uh, dictatorships around the world, situation in Nicaragua. In short, another world disrupted. When Merton was here, he talked a lot about Buddhists and uh, this raises a lot of eyebrows among the conservative Catholics of the time. I'm gonna skip over some of this for time purposes and just jump to the end here of, his, of, of one thing I wanted to glean from his talks. Um, in one of his talks he gave, he said, we, well, and when he says we, he's addressing the religious uh, people here in Anchorage. He wasn't speaking generally, but when I read these comments now, I say the we as a collective we of the general society. We, we have to be absolutely committed, Merton said, to those who are on the bottom of the pile. We have to identify in a very real way with the people who have had everything taken away from them. And this is what we usually are not. Usually we're identified with the people who are comfortable and prosperous and secure and so forth. Well, I don't have any quick answers, Merton said, but the fact remains that underlying the idea of being witnesses of God, very loving signs of hope for the world, we can't really be that if we don't identify with the prisoner, the criminal, the prostitute, with the absolutely deadbeat person who has had everything taken away from them he looked at the Alaskan religious and he said, as priests and as religious, it's not our job to judge, Merton said. It's not our job to denounce anybody. Our job, Merton said, in the middle of the chaos of 1968, on the ground in Alaska, he said, 
our job is to bring about reconciliation. Wow. So next part two, we are going to look at some images of Alaska. I'm going to share my screen and take you on a photo journey, uh, which will really put in context the uh, Merton, uh, you know, the Merton journal that we're talking about. So 1968, this is the year of, well, pivotal year in American history, right? This is a monumental year in American history. And it was, uh, I put a few things on the slide here that you could see uh, what was happening in 1968. Most of this is very familiar to people, but also in 1968, not on there, the Beatles also went to India, so did Merton. The Beatles went to India and the Beatles released the White Album in November of 1968. Actually, Merton knew who the Beatles were. Also in 1968 at Merton's alma mater, uh, Columbia University, the students took over the administration building. There was civil unrest everywhere in America, in France and Czechoslovakia. It was one of the most horrible years in American history. Even Merton at the beginning of the year said, this is going to be a horrible year, a brute of a year. He wasn't sure what was going to happen. But in Alaska, it was almost the complete opposite. If you look at the very last item on the screen, why is that? Because in the 49th state, the big, oil discovery was announced at Prudhoe Bay. And there was such jubilation. We were a very young state and this meant that we were going to have some economic independence. We were going to be able to build roads. We were gonna be able to have an economy here. Uh, out of curiosity, I went and looked at the archives of the newspaper in Anchorage when Merton arrived in September of 68. And you know, they had a women's section in the newspaper and I went and looked at that and it said that, uh, here, here was the headline for women in the women's section. Hush puppies are a great addition to fish dinners. Another article speaking about Mao Zedong, the cultural revolution, sort of a Chinese propaganda in a way, uh, the Chinese uh, feminist movement in China that, that said that the Chinese women were free from the shackles of femininity. So uh, Robert Daggy, a scholar, a Mer great Merton scholar said, Merton came in 1968 and he was searching, um, he was growing, he was changing. All right, let's go on to some more soothing topics. <laughs> okay, now, <laughs> This is amazing. I don't know what's going on here. I'm trying now to advance the screen. I don't know why it's not letting me go. There we go. Is everybody, did you see that one? Can we see it fully? We can see it, yep. Okay, so here we have a picture of uh, some of the sacred mountains in Alaska and a quote from Merton's journal. I have found enough lonely spots here in Alaska to last any hermit until judgment day. The mountains here are the finest I have ever seen anywhere. It is a great land. Notice that is a picture that was taken by Thomas Merton. 
Here is a picture of Denali, the great one. Uh, I took this photo on approach to Denali. Now, Merton never actually uh, went to Denali, but he saw Denali from, uh, the, from the convent in Eagle River through the window, and he made a couple of comments about that in the Alaska Journal. He talks about, uh, in, that, in those days, Mount McKinley and Mount Fouracre as great silent, silent and beautiful presences in the afternoon sun. These are mountains that he did see, Mount Sanford, Drum and Wrangell. This is just south of Glen Allen near the Golcana airstrip. And this is where Merton was flying with a private pilot and he landed and you'll see later on uh, the picture that was taken of him. These are very big mountains in Alaska. Here's another one from the Wrangell Mountains. Uh, this one was taken near Copper Center. And again, close, Merton flew over these, near these, and comments about all of these Mert, uh, in his journal. Here's a picture, whoops. Here's a picture of the Chugach Mountains in winter uh, surrounding Anchorage. This is a glacier south of Anchorage. Merton saw quite a few glaciers here. He did not see this one, but I put this one in because it's close to Anchorage. And if you can see the human figure in the middle of the screen, very small. This was taken with a drone camera. <clears throat> and you can see the scale of things. That gives you an idea of how, well, how you can really disappear in Alaska. Mount Redoubt, 10,197 feet directly across the inlet from Anchorage. Uh, this is an active volcano and it had erupted just two years before Merton was here. It's a strato volcano. When we're in Anchorage, we don't get to see this side, the exploded side of the volcano, but look what Merton saw. Merton saw Redoubt. Look how close his plane is to that peak. He makes this incredible um, comment on Mount Redoubt. It's handsome and noble in the distance, but ugly and sinister as you get near it. A brute of a dirty, busted mountain that has exploded too often. A bear of a mountain, a dog mountain, with steam curling up out of the snow crater. And on and on. And he felt like at any moment the plane was going to probably be pulled right off of course and hurled into the mountain. Uh, Redoubt, a volcano to which no, to which one says nothing. I just find that's incredible, that photo that he took. <clears throat> now, this is a 1930s uh, photo taken by the USGS uh, in Yakutat. And I, as I mentioned, Yakutat uh, is where Merton went, one of the places he went. This is the Hubbard Glacier. Um, it's a very <clears throat> famous glacier. It's 76 miles long. It empties into Yakutat Bay. Uh, when I first got to Yakutat, and it opens in my book, the preface of my book, I'm with a female bush pilot. I'm flying over this glacier when my first, um, so I was totally impressed by this female bush pilot, but also about this landscape. <clears throat> To the left of what I just showed you is Mount St. Elias, the second highest peak in the United States, 18,000 feet. 
So Merton in his journal writes, the clouds opened over Mount St. Elias, and after that I was overwhelmed by the vastness, the patterns of glaciers, the burnished copper sheen of the sun on the bright blue sea. I call this mountain the solitary mountain. Uh, it seems to stand alone from its Alpine sisters and brothers, and I also have called it the prophet mountain. Here it is again uh, from another viewpoint uh, in, taken, in, um, taken in Yakutat. And there's this great quote from one of Merton's talks um, about how sometimes our life demands breakthroughs. Not every day, not every week, not every month, but once in a while we, we must break through and go beyond where we are. You have to build up all you have, all you've done and push through with it. And then you can find that you are out of the woods, you're in a new clearing, you are somewhere else, and you're developing a new way. What a beautiful thing he said in Alaska. And there is that, there's my mountain. So you can imagine how uh, startled I was when I first went to Merton's Hermitage, Hermitage, the cinder block hut, and I found this icon on the wall, which of course I had read about, and this is an icon Merton kept in his, uh, in his uh, hut before he came to Alaska. This is an icon of the prophet, the Old Testament prophet Elias, being carried up to the heavens in a fiery chariot. I couldn't believe that Merton had an Elias icon and that Merton had written a poem, Elias, variations on a theme. Here's another glacier that Merton uh, saw. This is the Mendenhall Glacier in Juneau. And he talks about the torrential rains that met him in Juneau. It wasn't a festival of rain like he used to talk about in uh, some of his essays. No, no, this was a downpour like he had never seen before. Another picture that Merton took, quite interesting photo by Merton. This is another volcano he photo, photographed, the Augustine volcano. Uh, and I think, you know, that's a pretty good shot, uh, a pretty good photo that he, um, he, he took. So let's look about, let's talk about the scale of things. And um, here's a map that shows where Alaska is in relation to the rest of the country. And in square miles, Kentucky's about 40,000 square miles, New York about 54,000 square miles. Now look at Alaska, 663,000 square miles. So that's what I mean when we're talking about the geography thinking about where Merton went in Alaska, how far he had traveled to get up there, and then how much traveling around he did. Alaskans really like to do this. Uh, we, we like to superimpose a map of Alaska on the United States because it's about roughly one-fifth the size of the United States. And of course, um, I can't see Russia from my back door, but I can feel Russia a lot of times because Alaska has place names uh, that are still uh, in use today and, and for Russia. And you can see how close we are to Russia and during the, the period of Glasnost and Perestroika when Mikhail Gorbachev was um, the prime minister, uh, there were many exchanges between indigenous groups of Alaska and Siberia because they share common heritage, common genes and it was just a sense of euphoria and jubilation when native people, many Yupik people could reunite with their Russian uh, brothers and sisters, very close. 
This is the type of plane that Merton flew around in. This is not the plane itself, but this is the same model. It's a Piper Aztec. And when I was working on my book, uh, I flew out to Dillingham. Uh, Merton comments about Dillingham, how it looks like Siberia. And I stayed some nights out in Dillingham. Uh, I did a solo trip. My cell phone went dead. I was really... <laughs> I didn't know, I was trying to find a pilot to take me up and fly over Lake Lignigik, but it took a long time, but I finally did, uh, I finally did get a pilot to do that. Everybody out there is very busy commercial salmon fishing, so it was hard to get a pilot, but that's the kind of plane he took photos from. Here is our big airport in Cordova, Alaska. This is it, folks. It's a sheet metal building. Just like we have in Yakutat, there's only a few flights north, one flight south each day. It pretty much looks exactly the same as it did when Merton saw it in 1968. And I will tell you here, uh, uh, since we're on the subject of Cordova, Cordova is between Anchorage and Yakutat. Um, the best prospect for Merton to locate a hermitage in Alaska was indeed in Cordova. And Father Tom Connery told me that the Abbot of Gethsemane called the Archbishop of Anchorage to tell him about Merton's death on this, in December of 68. At that time, the Anchorage Archdiocese was working to possibly set up a location for Merton in Cordova near Eak Lake. This was all kept really hush-hush because really they were worried that there would be some kind of rush of hermits from Kentucky who would want to come up to Alaska. They wanted to put a halt to that. So they kept everything really quiet. But in fact, in fact, uh, Cordova would have probably been a good place for Merton, even though it was off the road system. The thing about Cordova is it wasn't that far from Anchorage, 20, 25 minute flight, and it's much bigger than Yakutat. In Cordova, Merton met this Jesuit priest, Father Segundo Lorente. He had been a priest in the most remote places in Alaska. Uh, he had been in the Kuskokwim. He had been in Nome. He had been all along the Yukon River. Uh, he was the first priest in America ever elected to the, any legislature. Merton met him. This is, by the way, Father Lorente's, um, Segundo Lorente's memoir. And I think the interesting thing here is that he writes in his memoir that he once waited 86 days for a mail plane to come and bring him any mail. Can you imagine Thomas Merton waiting 86 days before he got any of his letters? Well, Merton said that the churches in Alaska were poverty stricken, and he was right about that. When you compare them to New York, San Francisco, Pittsburgh, where there are 200 Catholic parishes, here is the Catholic Church in Dillingham, Alaska. Today, this is it. So Merton, um, he, he saw Dillingham. And Father Tom Connery, again, said, uh, said that once he went to give mass in this church, there was a dead and bleeding moose carcass hanging on the outside of the door. And Father Connery could not offer mass until he called the state troopers to please remove the the moose carcass. All right, here is the book. This is it, Thomas Merton in Alaska. 
Uh, this is the journal I have carried around for 15 years. It's, it, it looks like, it really does look like a squirrel chewed all over my copy. It's just, I, I, there's so much in this journal and uh, you know, I've already quoted some of the things, but he said in the journal that the mountains have got the Alps beat by a mile. So for years, when I carried this journal around, you see this mountain photo on the cover. I went all over Alaska trying to figure out what this mountain was. I asked people, I, I, I thought it was somewhere maybe in Southeast Alaska, looked and looked and looked and looked. And finally, one day I had an epiphonic moment. I looked up, I was in a South Anchorage. There was the mountain on the horizon. It is right in Anchorage. It is the O'Malley Peak about 5,000 feet high. There it is again on the cover of his journal. You can see on the left where Merton was in the plane and he's going by the mountain. But the thing is about mountains is there's so many of them in Alaska and the, the, it depends on the angle, it depends on the light, depends on the climactic conditions. You can, the mountain can be right in front of you, can look completely different, right? And so that was the mountain that he, um, he snapped and that became the cover of the journal. When the journal, and this is, by the way, is my cell phone photo. I tried to capture it. Not very good job, but that's the best I could do. Here is one of the reviews that appeared about the journal in Alaska. This was written by Marjorie Cole. She was a actual, she was a novelist and she was a professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. She read the journal. She made a review of it. I never saw the review at the time, even though I was in the state. And she says that Alaska thrilled Merton to the core, and uh, he, had, he had nothing but good things to say. But now I want to share something that I just discovered, uh, and I was pretty shocked when I discovered this, because I have just been writing about John Haynes. John Haynes is probably the most prominent uh, writer who ever came out of Alaskan soil of the greatest stature nationally. It turns out John Haynes had a little tiny review of the Alaska Journal uh, in his book of essays called Fables and Distances. I just discovered this. I've been reading John Haynes for years. Uh, and so I think he had such a good understanding of Thomas Merton and said that, you know, Thomas Merton's jottings in the Alaska Journal were very alert, humane, attractive, and that this small book uh, really shows uh, intuition of what place is and what it can mean for us in that rare freshening of impression by which the world or a part of it dulled by routine familiarity is renewed and by which in turn we too are renewed. So John Haynes knew in this small review that Merton was probably this landscape that he saw here was really having an impact on him. Here's a very historic photo. Father Tom Connery on the left. I've mentioned Thomas Merton in the middle and the Archbishop on the right. Sadly, Father Tom Connery died in 2019 in a flash flood in upstate New York. He was in his car going to, he was retired, but he was still going to offer mass as a retired priest when his car got caught in a flash flood and at age 82, he died. Uh, I'm very um, 
fortunate that I got to talk to him several times on the phone and had conversations with him. The archbishop uh, is also deceased, and uh, he he is a, he was a very very interesting man, and he was also from New York. He died in the year 2000, age 86. Uh, he was a chaplain in the U.S. Navy in World War II, and the New York Times did a uh, did an obituary of him. This is the only existing photograph of Merton in Alaska that I have seen uh, outside with his Roman priest collar on. In the background, very hard to see the mountain, but it's there, is Mount Sanford, 16,000 feet. I showed those pictures in the very early part of the slide. Merton, when he came to Alaska, said he really preferred to travel without the priest collar on. He liked to travel with his turtleneck sweater uh, you know, in street clothes. And you know, one of the African-American flight attendants on his flight up here turned to him and said, oh, are you a philosopher by any chance? Because he didn't have the priest outfit. Uh, you know, he didn't have the collar on at the time. And he liked that because he liked to talk to a lot of different people. This is a terrible photograph and I apologize, but here they are, the sister adorers of the precious blood, the six contemplative nuns in Eagle River that the local Alaskans called the Fire Lake nuns. They were contemplative nuns who came originally in 1967 from Oregon. And I know that right now there is a congregation of these of the same order in London, Ontario, Canada. And I'm really pleased that some of those nuns uh, I invited to be on this podcast and listen tonight. And I really hope that they are welcome if you all are on. Um, these contemplative nuns were workhorses. Uh, they didn't really uh, have a contemplative life like they wanted. They didn't have running water either and had to have water trucked into them. Uh, they were in Eagle River, which was not part of Anchorage at the time, and it was considered more remote than it is today, certainly. Um, but the, the, the archbishop was worried that the nuns and some of the clergy were going to get cabin fever. That was one of the reasons he sent uh, Merton up here, hoping that he would inject some you know, uh, vitality and some optimism into them. So uh, one of the nuns that Merton uh, talked to originally down in the Our Lady of the Redwoods, another order he spoke to, said that Merton's gift was, his greatest gift was to call forth the greatest gifts that are within us and to develop the gifts that God has given us. Here are the sister adorers. Uh, with the chaplain uh, having a conference, Merton stayed in the chaplain's trailer. This is the convent where the nuns in Eagle River welcomed Merton. Uh, right now, this is now called the big house uh, because the, the nuns left about a year and a half after Merton was here. There was just too many logistical problems. Uh, this, is the, uh, this house now is on the property of St. John Eastern Orthodox Cathedral. It's off to the left. You can't see it in this picture. Uh, and uh, it's a really beautiful uh, house and it's still used a lot today. Downstairs, there is a Thomas Merton room with Merton photos. This is the room where Merton spoke uh, to the nuns. 
when he did his day of recollection in Eagle River and his workshops. On the wall on the left, you can see an icon. This icon is the icon of the first Russian Orthodox saint ever canonized in North America from Alaska, Saint Herman the Miracle Worker. Very important uh, Russian Orthodox saint in Alaska. Not too far from the convent is Mount Baldy in uh, Chugach State Park. I took this photo. Uh, this is where Merton went hiking. Uh, I think it's really interesting because in those days, Merton went on a hike from the monastery. There was no road. There was no road to the trailhead like there is now. So Merton actually walked pretty far. And in his Alaska journal, he says, I climbed a mountain and I was really tired after it. So. I, uh, I think, again, this speaks to his stamina. There was about a 1,300-foot elevation gain here. Here is on the property where the nuns were, not far, one mile through the woods today, there's a Russian chapel full of icons. When Dr. Paul Pearson was here a few years ago, he uh, made a, a trek through the woods to see, this, to see this chapel when we did a field trip. And this is um, it's a very interesting thing Merton would have found because our connection with Russian history and uh, Russian orthodoxy. And uh, Merton would have appreciated, I think, that the metropolitan of Russian orthodoxy for the entire country of Russia came here in 1993 to consecrate this chapel. Inside St. John's, the uh, Eastern Antiochian church that's on the convent property today, look at all these icons. And you know what? Most of them were painted by a woman who was a member of the parish, uh, uh, who her name is Robin Armstrong, and she now lives in Kodiak, and she did a tremendous job. Here are the Russian Orthodox saints of Alaska. There's uh, Saint Herman, who was glorified in 1977, Saint Innocent, Saint Juvenali, Peter the Aleut. Outside of the convent, here's parts of the Chugach State uh, Chugach Mountains, and something that Merton uh, commented on. He was very disturbed that there was such a military presence in Alaska, but, you know, right above where he was driving, there actually was uh, a, a, a nuclear missile site. Here it is today, what's left of it. Uh, this is you know, it was the Cold War and Alaska's military was stationed here uh, up on the mountaintop. We had men there all year round because they were trying to protect American airspace from Soviet jets. So this Nike Missile Site Summit was, um, was very, very active. Of course, you know, Merton wrote the Cold War letters and they had to be censored. He was talking about the Cold War really early in the 1960s. This is the secret Nike missile launch site uh, for the defense against the Soviet Union, right above the hills where Merton was. Uh, he didn't, I don't think he knew there were nuclear missiles. I think he would have been extremely upset if he had known that. These are my dear Russian friends who came to Alaska in 2015 to shoot a documentary film. And we were hiking around the place where the nuclear missiles were once pointed to their country, the Soviet Union. Merton mentions a Russian hermit in his Alaska journal. This is him, Father Gerasim. 
he, he died one year after Merton was here. Merton really wanted to meet him. He lived on Kodiak Island. This is the ramshackle village that Merton uh, visited, Yakutat, where I lived and where I go back to all the time. This is the Alaska State Historical uh, Society photo, close to what Merton would have seen and what it looks like today, a very small village. Here's the cannery in the center. That's what Merton mentions. I was a fish slimer working in that cannery in 1979. We're getting almost finished here. The boat on the left, this photo is taken in Yakutat, right on the boat harbor where I stood 11 years after Merton came to Alaska. The reason Merton took this photo is because the boat on the left is called Tommy Boy, and he got a big kick out of that. I showed this photo to the Lieutenant Governor of Alaska at the time, Byron Malott, when my book came out. Byron Malott is from Yakutat, he is Clinkett. He knew the whole story about this boat. St. Elias Dancers of Yakutat, Clinkett Dancers. Here's the Russian church that Merton talks about. It's the St. Nicholas Orthodox Church. You notice the two nuns. Two nuns chauffeured Merton out there. Merton is the photographer in this picture, and this is a Denina Athabascan man unlocking the door to let them in to, uh, to see the, the church. This is what the church looks like in winter today. Here's the, one of the nuns again, chauffeuring Merton around. Merton took this photo. Uh, this photo is my favorite of all. This photo is the one that to me speaks about some kind of mystery and Merton's artistic sensibilities. He didn't like representational art or photographs. Here is a nun in her full habit with her veil on, even though it's post-Vatican II. And I think this image holds a lot of power because you have this solitary nun and she's in the mountainside and she's gazing out at the world and she's gazing at the beautiful mountains of Alaska and no words are necessary. And what more really needs to be said? Thank you. So that's, that concludes my formal remarks. And uh, I'm sorry I had to go so quickly uh, to, to give you just a taste of what Alaska was, what Alaska was at the time and the context, especially of the landscape and to give, to give Merton a big pat on the back because he was a real trooper when he came here. He, he did so much and he had so much energy. I personally do not understand how he did it because after this, as you know, he went on to India and did all the things he did in India, and then he came to Thailand. But unfortunately, of course, in a tragedy for the world, December 10th, 1968, he was found dead in his room uh, where he was at the religious conference outside of Bangkok. So thank you very much for listening, and uh, I'm going to turn it over to Alan, I think. Yes, Kathleen, wow. I, I'm uh, almost breathless at the breathtaking uh, <laughs> Alaska. I've never been to Alaska, so I feel like you you took us there. <clears throat> I'm I'm going to limit myself to one question given the time. 
which is not a critique of you. I loved what you were doing. And um, I can only, I, I, I'm going to reread that journal just uh, to get a, a feel for it again. You, you make it come alive. But I was thinking, uh, Merton really was a visitor to Alaska. He spent, you know, some few days there. You've lived there for a long time now. And so I was, I was just thinking, how, how do you think the landscape of, of Alaska impacted him? You made a comment near the end of your talk, landscape having an impact on him. Um, so if you could just summarize for us, what do you think the, the landscape did in terms of impact on him? Well, thank you, Alan. I, I think the way to say it best is that, um, you know, he took a, a vow of chastity, a vow of obedience, a vow of poverty to become an, um, a monk. When he came to Alaska, he took a vow of wonder. That's what happened to Merton in Alaska. He took a vow of wonder. You, it is impossible to come to Alaska and not have this land get into your blood somehow, to be inspirited by the land, uh, and I think embodied by the land. And I think that's what happened to Merton. I think he took a vow of wonder. And I think that, you know, like I said earlier, this wasn't just a prelude uh, to his Asian journey. This was the perfect prelude to his Asian journey. Wow, that's great. I mean, I think I could take a vow of wonder. So what a fantastic <laughs> takeaway. And uh, I'm going to throw it back to Teresa and she can wrap this up. And uh, someday I'm going to see you in Alaska. I, I'm going to invite you all up here at some point. <laughs> oh, thank you so very much, Kathleen. Uh, just what a vivid uh, uh, picture you gave us, not just of Alaska, but of Thomas Merton in Alaska. Um, I want to extend a special thanks to Father Dan Horan and the Spirituality Center at St. Mary's College for providing the Zoom platform and the technical support for Tuesdays with Merton. Also, thanks to Ellen for so skillfully uh, presenting the question uh, that ended our session, to Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube, to Mark Mead, who makes them available as podcasts. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars at merton.org slash ITMS. There you will also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. If you are not already a member, we invite you to consider joining. And if you're enjoying these free webinars, why not consider supporting the work of the ITMS by making a donation? We would very much appreciate it. Kathleen mentioned Merton's great sense of humor. Uh, you're in for a real treat next week, uh, next month, I should say, when Paul Pearson, the director of the Thomas Merton Center at Bellarmine University, will speak about uh, the humor and humanity of Thomas Merton. And Paul uses as the um, uh, equip to, as a launch pad for his presentation, um, statement by Merton when he said, I love beer, and by that very fact, the world. So I invite you to join us in December for that presentation and the registration link will soon be posted on the ITMS website. So for now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you in December. <laughs>